Pulaski Township, 1994, a year that would forever be etched in the township's history with a chilling legacy. The Dreyfus family, well-respected and seemingly without enemies, met a fate so grim and mysterious it shook the foundations of this close-knit community. Who could be behind the brutal demise of this family? And what dark secrets lay buried beneath the surface of this tragic event? Ural Mountains, 1959. In the unforgiving Russian winter, a group of experienced hikers barked on a trek that promised adventure but delivered only mystery and death. The Dyatlov Pass incident remains one of the most enigmatic and disturbing mysteries of the 20th century. What catastrophic events led these nine hikers to flee their tent in terror, only to meet their demise in the frozen wilderness? What you are about to hear beckons you into a world where the line between the known and the unknown blurs, where mysteries both near and far challenge our understanding of the world around us. This is yet another weird cast where we delve into the eerie depths of unexplained phenomena from the shadowy corners of Newcastle to the farthest reaches of our planet. Join us as we unravel tales that defy explanation, stories that leave even the most rational minds perplexed. Blake, are you ready to get weird? episode number one hell yeah let's get weird millie's here for it let's get weird millie millie's here for it millie all right so the deal with this is once a month you get your period yeah and then you're late uh, you go into complete autism mode (laughs) and uh we're gonna research some weird some weird stories. Yeah, no, I'm excited for it. Uh, the way it's going to work is um, I do research. Feed that in the chat GPT for this episode. We, we're doing uh, the Dreyfus slayings in Pulaski in 1994 and Dyatlov Pass. I know quite a bit about both. Uh Particularly, especially Dyatlov Pass, man. It's a really cool story. I thought you were going to say the thing on Pulaski. uh, I thought you were going to be like... No, I do have a closeness to that case, too, because my mom actually used to want to write a book about this case. Uh And so... Oh, yeah, you told me about that. Yeah, I asked her a bunch of stuff. She gave me some cool information that... I was not able to find on the internet, and so... Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's super cool, dude. Yeah. You're like Inspector Gadget, man. man. Ready. Go, go, Gadget Palooza. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, like I said, uh, I took all the information I had, fed it in a chat GPT, and had it write uh, like a narrative script that I'm going to read to Blake. He, for the most part, has no idea, very little to, if any, knowledge on either of these cases. Uh, Diot Love, I watched two two or three videos on. um, They were pretty extensive, but, like, I didn't, you know. Yeah. Like, I watched, but. All right, let's start with. Pulaski Township. Oh, shit. 1994. The case began on June 15th, 1994. Imagine a quiet mobile home community where neighbors know each other and the days pass peacefully. I can picture it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The tranquility was shattered when a gruesome discovery was made. 34-year-old Bonnie Dreyfus, her daughter's, Seven-year-old Jacqueline Dreyfus and four-year-old Heather Dreyfus and the girl's five-year-old cousin, Stephanie Herco, were all found brutally murdered inside their home. Oh, the mom, too? Yeah, the mom, mom too. The night before, Stephanie spent the night at the home, as she often did. The girls were home alone with Bonnie that night, as her husband and the father of the two girls, Tom Drake Dreyfus, was out of town in Ohio with his father that day on a business trip. Sounds convenient. Yeah. Jake claimed that he had taken his father's car on the trip because he had dropped his car off at the mechanic that morning. When Jake arrived at home that day at about 3 p.m., the door was locked and he had to use his key to unlock it. Huh. So, is this like him going to like find the bo- like the bodies are locked inside whoever left Well, he doesn't it. know at this point. He's okay. come, just getting home, walking in the house. I guess maybe he was surprised to see that it was locked. Yeah, um, okay. Anyway, when Jake got to the kitchen, he found his wife, Bonnie, stabbed to death. She was found with numerous stab wounds. A notable detail is that she had no defensive wounds on her right shoulder, suggesting that she might have been held down during the attack. In the bathroom, he found the bodies of Jacqueline, Heather, and Stephanie. They were all wearing swimsuits that they had on from swimming earlier that day. All three of the girls had multiple severe stab wounds. Their throats were slashed, and their skulls were fractured. The bodies were mutilated and stacked on top of the dryer. That is insane, man. Bonnie and her children were well-liked in the community. Their deaths not only left a void in the hearts of their family and friends, but also sparked fear and uncertainty in Pulaski Township and the surrounding areas. Yeah, dude. Like, I mean, like, it's one thing to kill somebody to, like, mutilate them and stuff. Man, that's like... Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, dude. That's, like, way beyond... The range. Yeah, that's way beyond anything, man. So naturally, there was an extreme amount of pressure on the police to find the perpetrator of this heinous crime. As the investigation progressed, a suspect emerged, someone who was known to the police and had a troubled past. This development marked a turning point in the case, shifting it from a mysterious tragedy to a focused pursuit of justice. Hmm. It seems easy to just pin it on somebody with a troubled past. Yeah, and I think as you, this goes on, you'll kind of see that this is that's a, 
probably where this is going. Yeah. They just, like, want to fucking be like, yeah, we did something. Yeah. And it's like, no, you fucking Especially when you have everybody calling for your head, you know. Yeah, yeah. So the police quickly focused their attention on Thomas Kimball, a local man from Newcastle with a history of drug addiction and petty crimes. Sounds like a real bad egg. (laughs) (laughs) His proximity to the crime scene and past behavior made him a prime suspect in the eyes of investigators. Kimball was known in the area for his struggles with substance abuse and had a reputation that did him no favors. In a small town where everyone knows each other's business, and Lord, do they know each other's business. It's worse now. Could you imagine if that bad egg lived now, dude? They'd be all over Facebook. Like, fuck you, Kimball. There would be Facebook groups dedicated. We're going to cut your fucking face off. (laughs) Like, fucking, they get wild on there. I'm like, wow, you sound just as bad as whoever did this. You know that, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, damn, just... Send to the fucking wherever, man. Don't you don't gotta fucking kill his mom. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your mom too. Like, whoa. Just let jail handle this. Yeah. <laughs> Give him the death penalty. You don't gotta <laughs> wear his face like like fucking leather face. What are you doing? <laughs> Where was I? Sorry. You're, no. This is good. This is what we're doing. Witnesses reported seen Kimball near the Dreyfus trailer on the day of the murders. Tom lived in Frizzleburg and was known to ride a bicycle to and from Newcastle via Route 422. Sounds he, dangerous. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> Dude, I'd rather walk than ride a bike. There's nothing worse when there's somebody on the side of like the highway with no shoulder or uh, sidewalk with a bike. Yeah. Well, like... And you have to time it right if there's another car coming the other way. And Listen, man, this is something I've thought about extensively. Like, I feel like, like, unless you're, like, a bike enthusiast with that, like, weird-ass fucking outfit and, like, dumb-ass fucking helmet and shit, uh, like, I feel like only crackheads ride bikes. I would rather walk somewhere than somebody ever see me on a bike, dude. I never want somebody to see me puffing down the road on a huffy, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> However, initial evidence against Kimball was not concrete. Good the case you. against him was built on a patchwork of witness statements and circumstantial evidence rather than direct physical proof linking him to the crime. Sounds like the American justice system hard at work as usual. (laughs) Despite the lack of hard evidence, the pressure to solve this high-profile case was intense. Yeah, go figure. The community demanded justice for the Dreyfus family, and the police were under scrutiny to deliver results. In 1998, four years after the murders, Thomas Kimball faced the trial for the murder of the Dreyfus family. The prosecution's case hinged on the testimonies of several witnesses who claimed Kimball had confessed to them about the murders. Prosecution argued that Kimball was attempting to purchase drugs from Bonnie and killed her in a rage when she declined. Kimball allegedly bragged to several people before the murders were public, including pointing out to the house to a witness and saying, that's where I killed those girls. 
Kimball allegedly checked himself into a psychiatric facility and confessed to the murders to another patient. Hmm. The trial was tense and highly publicized. It brought to light not only the gruesome details of the crime, but also the complexities of relying on witness testimonies in a murder case, especially when physical evidence is scarce. Man, I wouldn't trust anybody's word from Newcastle, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. They just say shit, man. I saw last year somebody tried getting some kid arrested for just asking to fucking shovel their fucking... (laughs) <laughs> their sidewalk. I, I think I did see something <laughs> like, like that. I'm like, and then like, you know what? Those same people be like, you know what? Kids don't do that anymore. Kids don't go out and cut grass and shovel sidewalks anymore. Like, yeah, they do. You call the cops on them, you asshole. <laughs> Kimball's defense team argued that the evidence against him was circumstantial at best. They emphasized the lack of direct physical evidence linking him to the crime scene and raised questions about the reliability of the witnesses' testimonies. They claimed Kimball was talking about the murders before they were public knowledge because his mother owned a police scanner that he was listening to when the bodies were found. Prosecution argued that Kimball was attempting to purchase drugs from Bonnie and killed her in a fit of rage when she refused. Despite a lack of single piece of physical evidence, The jury was swayed by the weight of the circumstantial evidence, the emotional impact of the crime, the testimonies that painted Kimball as the perpetrator, and the absence of another plausible suspect led to his conviction. Kimball was sentenced to death, a verdict that sent shockwaves through the community and raised serious questions about the justice system, especially in cases relying heavily on circumstantial evidence. But as you can probably guess... There's more. But what, yeah, just like fucking OxyClean. But wait, there's more. <laughs> in a dramatic turn of events, Kimball's conviction was overturned in 2000. The oh, appeal shit. highlighted significant flaws in the trial, particularly the limitations placed on the defense in questioning the credibility of a key witness. Limitations were put on the defense? Uh, yeah, there were. Um, there were, I think there were multiple witnesses that uh, they wouldn't. They let didn't them testify at the first trial. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. dude! Yeah, they're they're pretty important ones Man, too. Dude. Yeah, the dude, our system just stacks shit against people. Sometimes it's just like unfucking real. Yeah. This development opened the door for to a re-examination of the entire case. It brought into focus the importance of a fair trial where both sides have the opportunity to fully present and challenge evidence. Yeah. What it fucking should be. Yeah. The role of forensic evidence came into the spotlight with the introductions of a forensic expert, Dr. Bennett Amalu, and his findings. Paul Amalu? Dr. Dr. P- Troy Paul Amalu. Yeah, dude. On the case. <laughs> he was amazing. I know he did so <laughs> he much, dude. Specializes in hair forensics. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Amalu's <clears throat> Dr. Amalu's analysis suggested that the evidence might point to another suspect, casting further doubt on Kimball's guilt. Damn. 
This new perspective on the evidence highlighted the evolving nature of forensic science and its critical role in criminal investigations. It raised questions about how evidence is interpreted and presented in court. Kimball's case became a symbol of the challenges in the criminal justice, justice system, particularly in cases involving potential wrongful convictions. Hmm. The overturning of his conviction was a significant moment, not just for Kimball, but for the legal community as a whole. In 2002, Kimball faced a retrial. This time, the defense was better prepared, armed with new forensic evidence and a strategy to challenge the prosecution's narrative. The retrial focused heavily on the forensic evidence presented by Dr. Amalu. His testimony and analysis of the crime scene photos played a pivotal role in challenging the prosecution's case against Kimball. Damn. Kimball was a hemophiliac, and Omalu made several arguments based on this. Well, you scared of blood. No, he's he bruises and injures easily. Oh, wow. Cuts easily. Like okay. His skin is... Yeah. Yeah. According to evidence at the scene, Bonnie put up a fight with whoever attacked her. She had picked up a chair at some point, and there were scuff marks on the ceiling from it. Despite what was clearly a struggle and Bonnie weighing significantly more than Tom, who weighed like 100 pounds at the time. Because he smoked crack. <laughs> there were no injuries found on Kimball at the time of his arrest. The girls also showed signs of fighting against their attacker. Omalu argued that it would have been almost impossible for Kimball to escape unharmed. Hmm. I think that's pretty fucking fair. Yeah. Another key piece of evidence was a bloody washcloth found at the scene. Dr. Omalu stated that the DNA on the washcloth was consistent with Thomas Dreyfus, the husband and father of the three victims. Man, I had my suspicions on him from the fucking start. This finding raised questions about his potential involvement. This was further supported by Amalu's assessment that the girls were killed in a crime of passion, suggesting that the murder was close to the victims. Hmm. His testimony also highlighted the lack of defensive wounds on Bonnie Dreyfus and the severe nature of the children's injuries, which he argued were not characteristic of a typical robbery or outsider attack. This next part is directly from the docket of the appeal. In addition to the forensic evidence demonstrating that the blood of one of the victims, who Thomas Dreyfus denied touching, was found on his hand, defense counsel was aware of a statement given to the police a year after the murders by Mary Herco that indicated that Tom Dreyfus was at the victim's home shortly before the murders occurred. Mary Heiko Herko, the mother of the of victim Stephanie Herko, had given a statement to the Pennsylvania State Police indicating that she was speaking on the telephone with Bonnie Dreyfus around 2 p.m. on the day of the homicides. Herko indicated that the conversation ended at about 2.20 p.m. after Bonnie Dreyfus stated that she had had to go because Jake just had uh, pulled in. Jake from State Farm. Jake, uh, uh, Tom, that his that's his nickname was Jake. Oh, okay. The husband. All right. Okay. Yeah, Jake from State Farm didn't Jake's, exist. Though. Jake, yeah, Jake from State Farm wasn't involved in this crime. <laughs> I don't think he could have been, but 
he seems like a good guy. I yeah. don't think he would do something like this. Mess up his khakis. <laughs> the Commonwealth did not call Mary Herco as a witness at the first trial. She was called as a witness by defense counsel as the statement would place Tom Dreyfus at the scene of the homicides 40 minutes before the time that he tes- testified to arriving at home. On direct examination by defense counsel, Herco testified that on the afternoon of the murders, she had spoken by telephone with Bonnie Dreyfus and that just before hanging up, Mrs. Dreyfus had said, I got to go. Somebody just pulled up in the driveway. Defense counsel then sought to question her about her prior statement to the state police. The prosecutor objected on the ground that defense counsel was seeking to impeach his own witness. The objection was sustained and defense counsel was not permitted to question Herco about the prior statement. That's fucked up. Yeah. Kimball asserts that the trial court abused its discretion in refusing to allow defense counsel to cross-examine his own witness about her prior statement to the state police, which placed a specific person at the scene of the homicide at the time the crimes appeared to have been committed, where her testimony at trial indicated only that an unidentified person was at the scene. He contends that the prior statement was significant because it was exculpatory as to him and cast serious doubt on the alibi of Tom, a.k.a. Drake, Dreyfus. Kimball asserts that the refusal of the trial court to permit further questioning of the witness with regard to her prior statement denied him the opportunity to place the last words of Bonnie Dreyfus before the jury, words that indicated that another person was at the scene at the time of the homicides and that those words could have had an impact on the jury's verdicts by creating a reasonable doubt as to his guilt. He argues that the interests of truth and justice require that he be given the opportunity to cross-examine Mary Herco as to her prior statement. How shitty of a fucking attorney do you have that doesn't argue these things? This is what happens when you're poor. Yeah, yeah, that's another lesson of this story, I think. Yeah. Yeah, dude, because if you're rich, you end up like Epstein. How many times was Epstein in fucking trouble before he actually got in fucking trouble, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Like three times, I think, three or four times. And that's why my mom wanted to write a book about this, because she said, like, nobody ever cared about this story because it involved poor people. You know what I mean? So, like, the big crime shows and documentary makers, they're just not... Even though it's an interesting story, it would be f- cool to make a documentary about it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. But they don't care because... Poe folks. Drug addicts. Poe folks. Yeah. By nappy roots. Tom Dreyfus testified at the first trial that when he found the girls' bodies in the bathroom, he thought he had observed movement of Heather's eyelids and believed that Heather was still alive at the time. He testified that Heather was the only child whom he touched after finding the bodies. Dreyfus's testimony was inconsistent, however, with the testimony of one of the Commonwealth's forensic experts who testified on cross-examination that blood found on the right hand of Tom Dreyfus was a genetic match for that of his daughter Jacqueline, not of his other daughter Heather. Furthermore, Tom and Bonnie had marital problems due to his alleged substance abuse and, and the night before the murders, Tom told a friend that they were not sleeping together. Oh, shit. What was Tom on? <laughs> mm. 
Uh, I want to say he was a drinker and he smoked weed. Oh, the problem drinker then. Yeah. Um, that's all I found doing research. Yeah. Um, Made it sound like he was like a meth head. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The medical examiner noted uh, that Dreyfus had scratches on his hand on the day of the murders, and before calling 911, he called his friend and hit his weed first. The jury at the retrial was faced with a complex mix of circumstantial evidence, forensic analysis, and the daunting task of determining guilt beyond reasonable doubt in a case that had already seen so many twists and turns. Ultimately, the jury acquitted Kimball. The the acquittal was a landmark moment, demonstrating the importance of forensic evidence in criminal trials and raising questions about how justice is served in complex cases. The acquittal of Thomas Kimball left the community with mixed feelings. While some saw it as a correction of a wrongful conviction, others were left wondering about the true perpetrator of the Dreyfus murders. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, And nobody was ever charged with it. Oh, my God. Dude, it was obviously the dad. Yeah. For Kimball, the acquittal meant freedom, but also a return to life forever changed by years in prison and the shadow of murder accusation. I'm pretty sure he got a pretty fat check for it, at least. Yeah? Yeah. I hope. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, whenever I see stuff like that, like, you know, oh, they got, like, millions of dollars, like, this person, that person, whatever. Like, I'm like, man, sometimes, like, I know it's obviously, like, I would want at least that also. But, like, sometimes it's like, damn, that's, like, putting a price on it. Like, it just feels wrong. Um, Good for him, though. Yeah. I guess. Well. Someone. Momentarily. Oh shit! <laughs> there's still there's, there's, <laughs> this poor fucker, dude. Poor fucking <laughs> he guy. He really drew a short, short, <laughs> just short straw on this. Just life, getting dude. shit on his whole life. Uh the Dreyfus case remains a poignant reminder of the complexities of the criminal justice system. It underscores the need for continual improvements in forensic science legal procedures, and the importance of ensuring that justice is served both for the victims and the accused. Tom Dreyfus, the husband of Bonnie Dreyfus and father of two of the victims, was initially a person of interest in the investigation. However, no charges were brought against him. On April 16, 2011, Tom Dreyfus was killed in a head-on collision when he was traveling in the wrong lane on Route 18 in Beaver County. Damn. Seven years later, on October 2nd, 2018, the body of 56-year-old Tom Kimball was found along railroad tracks just east of Moravia Street in Newcastle after a family member reported him missing a few days prior. And that is the end of the road. Oh, for that story. Shit. Who, they don't know who killed him? No. Uh, no. There, I don't he know if there was... on the side of the road? Yeah. Um, I don't know if there was ever an investigation. Let me see if I can find... It might have... He might have 
just been walking there and um on drugs or something, you know, like he might have like whacked by a car or something. No, he might have just I don't know, OD'd. like OD'd, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. It doesn't look like anything wild. Doesn't look like there's any information on. They don't care about them. They're um, like, whatever, yeah, they're dude, like, what? We a, fucking they let just, you they, out of jail, gave you money, and this is what you do. Yeah. There's no sign of foul play, so. So he just. Yeah, well, they, you know, they also said that those murders were him too. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who knows? I guess <laughs> nobody knows. It's like the weather around here. <laughs> you know, meteorologists is wrong all the time. It's like the cops. They're like, yeah, that guy did it for sure. <laughs> then like 10 years later, like, oops, <laughs> it wasn't him. It was the dad, but we can't arrest him now. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like it was probably the dad. Yeah. Well, they do say that like in cases like that, like nine times out of 10, it's like somebody close. Yeah. Drug addicts don't murder people for, you know, like they don't. I mean, like, I, I guess, like, I, some may, I, you know, you don't want to say, like, they don't, look, I mean, like, generally not speaking, like no, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. passionately murder th- three little kids over drugs, man. Yeah, I used to work in treatment, and not one of those people said they ever murdered anybody that way. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> no, I mean. Seriously, though, no, they just want drugs, that's Yeah. All. They don't want to kill people, they just want some dope. <laughs> yeah yeah that's a even that's if she wild, did though. like fuck him over or short him or something yeah dude i've been fucked over my day yeah i'm gonna Just fucking kills. kill them and their kids yeah. like what <laughs> <laughs> no dude that's insane at most, I was like, I'm going to slash your tires, like, you know? Yeah. It, it just... Shit on your porch. Yeah, you know, just super inconvenient your day yeah. or something, <laughs> you know, your week. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> Rip all the zippers off your jackets. I don't fucking know, dude. <laughs> all right. Um, so our second story... Yeah, this one is, is cool. one of my favorite stories of all time. Personally, when I first heard about this, I don't know, it was years ago. Yeah. I just went down a rabbit hole <laughs> and could not stop. My I, mom I was, watched it. I was I was scared at first, <laughs> Wow, to be honest. Damn, dude, was, you had nightmares about it? I just kept thinking about it. Damn. I had my mom watch a couple things on it, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So... Without further ado, let's jump into this one. Gang, gang. On January 23rd, 1959, a group of nine hikers led by Igor Dyatlov embarked on a skiing expedition. Fucking Igor, dude. Fucking Igor. (laughs) They were all experienced hikers from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, setting out to reach Otorten, a mountain in the northern Ural range. Mountains were typically rated on difficulty on a scale from one to three, and a torten was a category three, making it the most difficult. The hikers were all grade two hikers, but were well experienced and were hoping to receive certification for grade three upon completion. The team originally consisted of ten members, and I am going to absolutely 
butcher these names. Cool, dude. But we're we'll not give Russian, it a shot. Dude. It's okay. Yeah. Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubinina, <laughs> Yuri Krivonoshenko, Alexander Kolevitov, Zenaida Kol. Mo- Kol- Mogorova. Nice. Rustam Slobodin. Sounds Nikolai Thibault. Brignols. Semyon Zol- Zolotaryov. <laughs> Hail Zoltar. And Yuri Yudin. You know, if they didn't want their names butchered, they should have had more normal names. We got through that. We got through it. Which one looks like Dick Dastardly? We'll, we'll get to that one. <laughs> we will definitely get to that guy. <laughs> All the members of the group were between the ages of 20 and 24, except for 38-year-old Zolotaryov, who joined the group late after plans with another expedition fell through. That's Dick Dastardly. Yeah. That's we got a whole section dedicated to that fucking guy. Tony Hinchcliffe. <laughs> he looks like... <laughs> Tony Hinchcliffe and Dick Dasserly just together. The group had to take a train and then a truck to Visay, which was the last settlement before the mountains. They spent the night in Visay and physically and mentally prepared for the journey ahead. On January 27, 1959, the group set off towards the mountain. On January 28th, one of the members had to turn back due to health issues, leaving nine hikers. It was Yuri Yurden. According to diaries and other evidence, the group reached the edge of the forest and set up camp near the banks of the Ospia River. They decided to leave a cache of emergency supplies in the area before their first significant climb up uh, Colot Cycle, or Dead Mountain, as it was known to the locals. Oh, sounds... It was, good. Yeah. Sounds like a good place to go hiking on great Dead place. Mountain. Perfect. Yeah. It's where I'd want to be, for sure. It was called this due to a complete lack of wildlife in the area. Everything's dead. Diary entry on t- the 27th is as follows. Weather today is a bit worse. Wind from the west, snowing probably from the pines since the sky is perfectly clear. Started relatively early, around 10 a.m., Got back on the Mansai Trail. Up to now, we were following the Mansai Trail, on which not so long ago passed a hunter with deer. Yesterday, it seems we stumbled upon his resting stop. Deer didn't go any further. The hunter took the hunter took the beaten trail by himself. We were following in his steps. Had a surprisingly good overnight. Air is warm and dry, though it's. Negative 18 degrees Celsius to 24 degrees Celsius. Walking is especially hard today. We can't see the trail. Have to grope our way through at times. Can't more do more than 1.52 kilometers, which is one mile per hour. Trying out new ways to clear the path. The first in line drops his backpack, skews forward for five minutes, comes back for a fifth, 10 to 15 minute break, and catches up with the group. That's one way to keep laying ski tracks nonstop. Hard on the second hiker, though, who has to follow the new trail with full gear on his back. We gradually leave the Ospia Valley. It's upwards all the way, but goes rather smoothly. 
Thin birch grove replaces firs. The end of the forest is getting closer. Wind is western, warm, piercing with speed like the draft from airplanes at takeoff. Firm, open spaces. I can't even think of setting up a labaz here. It's nearly four. Have to start looking for a place to pitch the tent. We go to the Ospia Valley. Seems this place is the deepest snow. Wind not strong. Snow 1.22 meters deep. We're exhausted, but start setting up for the night. Firewood is scarce, mostly damp firs. We build the campfire on the logs, too tired to dig a fire pit. (laughs) Dinner's in the tent, nice and warm. Can't imagine such comfort on the ridge with howling wind outside, 100 kilometers away from human settlements. How warm could it actually fucking be in a tent in that, dude? Well, I believe they had a pretty uh, complex uh, stove set up inside the tent that also warmed it. And Uh, for the most part, they had good clothes, thick layers, and they were used to it probably too. So Yeah, I guess. But not enough apparently. I'd be too cold. I'm cold right now. I am cold, and it's pretty warm. My hands are freezing. (laughs) (laughs) On February 1st, the group, after starting late and going 500 meters off their planned route, reached the area now known as Diotlov Pass. Now, from what I remember and all the research that I've done, the way to, you want to, obviously I haven't been there, so I don't, I can't describe it perfectly, but the way I've always seen it in my head is you have woods and there's a clearing, right? A big clearing with a hill, a fairly steep hill. Okay. Right? Uh, Not steep enough that you would have to climb it, but steep enough that if there's snow on it, it's going to be a fucking problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's going to suck. Yeah. Yeah. So they get to the pass, and they start climbing the pass. But as it's getting late and the snow is getting quite heavy, the hikers are left with no choice but to set up their tent on the slope for the night and start again the next day. What happened next has been the subject of intense speculation and debate for almost 70 years. Diotlov was expected to send a telegram to their club as soon as they returned to Vazai. After a few weeks and no word, there wasn't any panic because this was typical for the time. You know, people used to just go out in the woods for however long. They'll be yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no cell phones or anything like that. So They'll be back. Nobody thought anything of it at first. Yeah. <coughs> but, Seems reasonable, I guess. Yeah. Especially for the time period, I yeah. guess. But by February 20th, people were demanding a search team on February 26, rescuers found the team's campsite. I am. And what they found is fucking weird. It is weird. There's just so much going on, too, man. Like, the shit that I've seen, I'm like, every time you think, you're like, oh, this is probably what happened. Like, they're like, yeah, but check this out. Yeah. (laughs) And we're going to go through all of it right now. So... The first thing they noticed when they got there was that the tent was slashed open from the inside. It was in shreds. Whoever uh, 
did it, probably did it with a knife, and it was somebody from inside the tent, which is peculiar, to yeah. say the least. Like they were trying to get out, yeah. away from something. Yeah. Most of the group's belongings, including shoes and clothes, were still inside of the tent, and they were thrown in all over the place, and it was a mess. There were footprints in the immediate vicinity of the tent, scattered in all directions. But after a short way down the slope, the footprints arranged themselves into a single foul line. Hmm. Several of the footprints did not have shoes or even socks on. That's weird. Yeah. Especially being out in the elements like that. Yeah. Underneath a shallow layer of snow in the area was smooth ice, leading some to theorize that the area rapidly got warmer for a brief period of time and then rapidly cooled down. <clears throat> Very strange one. Yeah, how how could that even be? Yeah. Like... At the edge of the woods and at the bottom of the pass, so, you know, if you remember, we got the hill... At the very bottom of it is the edge of the woods. At the edge of the woods was remnants of a bonfire right next to a really big pine tree. And this is where they discovered the first two bodies belonging to Yuri Krivonoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko, both of which were wearing only their underwear. And by underwear, uh, I believe it was like, like long, long johns. johns. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Still weird, though. Outside Still of the weird, tent. With no clothes on. Near a bonfire. Yeah. Where a bonfire was. A prosecutor described their scene as follows. Krivonashenko's right leg has no footwear. On his left foot, there is a brown sock torn. Another sock like this was discovered half burnt next to the fire. Hmm. On the backs of his hands, the skin is torn. Between the fingers, there is blood. The index finger is also torn. The skin of the left shin is torn and covered in blood. There are no visible, no more visible injuries on his body. Durashenko has woolen socks on his feet, and over these socks, another lighter sock. His ear, lips, nose are all covered in blood, and on his left hand, the middle finger is bloody. The tree branches were broken, and there were splinters in their hands and arms, suggesting the two were climbing the tree. <laughs> There were also bad burn marks and teeth marks on the arms and hands. One of them actually bit their knuckle off. Whoa. Suggesting that they were testing the limits of, of developing frostbite. Doroshenko had pulmonary edema and pulmonary contusion as a result of blunt trauma. Both of their causes of death were listed as, listed as hyper, hypothermia. So, wait a minute. It said that their knuckles were fucking chewed off? Um, the one guy, I forget which one, he um, he bit his own knuckle off. And the, they would think, because he was developing frostbite, and he was trying to see like how bad it was. Like, you know oh. what I mean? Like, what, oh. did you, like did, you ever, did you ever go to the dentist and uh, get the Novocaine in your face, yeah. and you start scratching it and messing with it and yeah. just seeing you know like yeah. oh, is, there's no feeling he here. just chewed his knuckle so right just, off yeah because he didn't feel himself or he it. might have uh you know done it to give himself like an adrenaline boost or something you know who knows but yeah he bit his own 
a knuckle off. Dude, he would have made it through a Saw movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For sure. Joke Saw would have met his match that day. Yeah, dude, because that guy will bite his knuckles off. He doesn't (laughs) give a fuck. (laughs) The following are reports from rescue team members. For about 20 meters around the cedar, there was evidence of young fir trees being cut with a knife. We saw around 20 such cut stumps, but we didn't re- we didn't see any of the cut branches left except for one. It isn't possible to imagine that they were used to maintain the fire. First of all, they're not good for firewood. Second, around them were quite a lot of dry twigs and materials. Several wool sock cotton Several wool and cotton socks were scattered around the fire. There was a woman's handkerchief burned through in several places and some fragments of wool and clothes, but we didn't find the actual clothes themselves. In particular, we found the cuff of a dark sweater there, not on the bodies. Also, we found some money, eight rubles. (laughs) Sounds like Zelda money. (laughs) (laughs) A little ways away from the first bodies, between the pine tree and the tent, three more bodies were discovered. So these three were, like, going back up the hill towards the tent Yeah, uh, between the tree and the tent. Uh, Igor Dolyatlov, Zenaida Kolmogorova, and Rustam Slobodin. All three officially died of hypothermia. But Slobodin had a skull fracture and traces of blood discharge from his nose, and Dyatlov was vomiting blood. Kolmogorova had a baton-shaped bruise on her waist. Baton? A baton-shaped bruise on her waist. The three were laid out in a way that suggested they were trying to return to the tent. Like, oh. The most perplexing discoveries came almost three months later. Four more hikers were found in a ravine, previous buried in snow, previously buried in snow and only revealed due to warmer weather. Uh, yeah, that's right. With injuries that baffled the investigators. Luyo Damila Dumanina had a severe chest trauma and missing tongue and eyes. Multiple yeah. broken ribs and died due to internal bleeding from the chest trauma. Alexander Kolevitov uh, had soft tissues around his eyes gone, and his eyebrows were missing. Had an open wound behind his ear and a deformed neck, <laughs> but his official cause of death was listed as hypothermia. Nikolai Thibault Brignole had severe skull damage and, desi- and died as a result of head trauma. And Semyon Zolotaryov had severe chest trauma, broken ribs, and died due to internal bleeding from the chest trauma. Dude, I'd be so mad if I died and somebody took my eyebrows. <laughs> Especially mine, dude. Be, <laughs> yeah, mine are at least blonde. On fleek. Yeah, mine are at least blonde. You don't even know I have them yeah. until they're gone, dude. You would know if they were gone <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's hard. It's so hard not to... Uh, like when you see somebody without eyebrows, it's just immediately like, whoa! Yeah, that person doesn't have fucking eyebrows, yeah. dude. It's like Austin Powers with the mole, <laughs> mole, mole, mole. 
you don't mean to be like that. You just can't stop. You can't uh, look away. It's just it's so odd looking. Yeah, sorry. You know, just it's a shock. Not <laughs> you don't see it a lot. Medical examiners asserted that the injuries were consistent with those of a high-speed car accident. There were reports of high radiation levels on some of the hikers' clothing, adding another layer of mystery to the already inexplicable circumstances. The whole thing is weird. So here are the main theories uh, explaining what happened. First, most common one is the avalanche theory. This is one of the more accepted theories. It suggests that an avalanche caught the hikers unaware, leading them to cut open their tent and flee in panic. That is just... And I actually believe uh, they used, like, the model from um, Frozen. The, oh. Like the... <laughs> the like motion the, picture? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, like, the graphics model the special effects model that they used to design the snow in that movie or whatever Damn. to prove that it was an avalanche that killed them. But the cold never bothered me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think so like whenever you first, so like the first set of bodies, <clears throat> I think, a lot of that definitely lines up, especially like if they're trying to climb trees and stuff. Wouldn't yeah. it? Wouldn't that be something you would want to do? Maybe if an avalanche but is coming. I have. I don't know because I've never been in an avalanche and I yeah. don't know the protocols for one. I just feel <laughs> like they wouldn't have made. They all made it down there to the bottom and started going back up. If it was an avalanche, they would have all been found, like right by the end of the yeah. Avalanche, and why did wherever they were yeah. Those people were hiding, those four people were hiding in a ravine, like... With their fucking tongues and eyebrows missing, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, there's there's just too much. So, Other... the, 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 uh, so the one thing, though, so I'm like, okay, why were their tongues and eyes and shit missing? Do you think animals and stuff could have done that? That's the theory, and I, I believe that, I would tend to believe that that probably yeah. what happened if i was a raccoon they were dude, the ones out there the longest months yeah. you know if i was a raccoon or possum i'd definitely eat some tongue yeah but other people have argued that you know if they're if an animal is going to come eat soft tissue off of you they're not going to specifically single out your tongue and your eyeballs they're going to eat everything that's true so yeah like whenever i see a dead carcass being you know in the woods or wherever like that's picked you see, like, the rib cages yeah. and shit, you know? So. Yeah. So I don't know about that one. But the, maybe the tongue and the eyes are the first to go. We don't know, dude. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, because they're extra soft and squishy. Yeah. I don't know. I still think that's probably what happened to their tongue and eyes, personally. Yeah. But who knows? It's like peach ring tissue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get it from ho-hos, dude. <laughs> Five cents. <laughs> so the next theory is the infrasound-induced panic. Proposed by Donnie Eicher in his book, Dead Mountain, this theory suggests that a weather phenomenon known as the Carmon Vortex could have produced infrasound capable of inducing uh, panic attacks in the hikers, leading them to flee to their tent erratically. Um, Sounds like that guy's an idiot, dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> that could explain that could that that could explain why they left their tent if they just left their tent and died. But there's just too many other things. Yeah, dude. That sound didn't fucking cave their chest in. Yeah, no, not at all, man. Yeah, that sounds ridiculous. Tell that guy. Is he still alive? We need to email that dude and be like, hey, you're a fucking idiot, dude. Come on, Donnie. Come on, Donnie. Get it together. What's his name? Donnie Iker. Donnie Iker. Yeah. Fuck that guy. The next uh, theory is military tests. Some theories propose that the hikers accidentally camped near a Soviet military testing ground and were exposed to secret weapons tests, possibly involving radiological or chemical agents. This is my personal favorite theory, yeah. and I'll get to why in a minute. So the next theory is paradoxical undressing. This theory, linked to hypothermia, suggests that the hikers experiencing severe cold irrationally discarded their clothing due to the condition known as paradoxical undressing, which occurs in advanced stages of, of hypothermia. Again, I could see decent theory yeah. to start off with. Right, right, but, yeah. But uh, it just doesn't explain as much. It sounds like the cold sweats, dude. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it sounds like. It's like such a fucking shitty cycle to be in. Yeah. One of the theories was that they were attacked by the Mansi people who lived, the tribe that lived in the area. Old tribes uh, people, huh? Yeah. What year was this again? Uh, 1959. That's like not that uh, long ago. Yeah. This theory's been mostly discredited, and I agree. Human beings didn't do this alone, anyway. Yeah. Um, especially not tribes people, you know? With basic know, weapons and shit. I guess. I don't know. I watch a lot of movies. Car crash trauma? Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess that's fair. Uh, radioactive contamination, which I would say pretty much goes with the military test theory. Um, some people have suggested that they were attacked by a Yeti or an animal. Uh, again, just don't think those are it. Yeah. Alien UFO encounter. Um, there were actually reports of seeing orange lights in the sky in the area mm. uh, before and after. But again, I think that can be explained by the military theory. Um, yeah, I think it definitely. That's probably why nothing's been answered so yeah. far because it was the fucking right. military uh, man. Whatever, if they're fucking trying to hide something, sometimes no answers is the fucking answer. Yeah, you know, like they just want to cover that up. Yeah, for sure. And then, so like a mixture of military animals with the eyes, and you know, maybe that's why they were hiding. Yeah. You know. Um, there's a theory about criminal gang or prison escapees, and that's probably not it. And then there was also, well, I mean, that that kind of goes along with my ultimate theory, too. Um, and then, I can't read this last one, so we're going to skip it. 
because it's not important anyway. So my theory goes back to Dick Dastardly yeah, yeah. himself. Dude, he's uh, a... Semyon Zolotaryov. He's I a mean, bad last name, too. Yeah. He doesn't just, sound like a good I mean, guy overall. He doesn't look at this guy. Oh, my God, dude. Just to look at him, he, I'm like, what a... I not have a good guy, never dude. looked at somebody it's before like, and been so sure that they've been responsible for the <laughs> deaths of nine people. This guy looks like Conan O'Brien playing a villain in a Disney Channel movie, dude. Dude, it's like he's he watched every villain movie he could and was like how can i look exactly like a bad guy and he went yeah. to the barber and was just like hey <laughs> hook it up dog <laughs> and like they just gave him that mustache and everything dude. yeah dude they're He's... like you want to look like the worst person ever <laughs> the sinister yeah person in all of russia here yeah. you go fam you, you want to look like you're gonna chase around people in the wacky races <laughs> penelope pit stop you think you, you want to look like you're gonna chase penelope pit stop for the rest of your life here's this mustache <laughs> so semyon zolotaryov was one of the most intriguing members of the dialotlov pass hiking rope primarily because of his background and the circumstances surrounding his participation in the trek he joined the group led by Igor Dyatlov unexpectedly and was significantly older than the other members, being 38 years old at the time of the incident. Just a fucking 38-year-old walking up on some 20-year-olds. Come me with you guys. Twirling his fucking mustache, dude. And they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sure, Dick Dastardly, you could. Sure, yeah, you why not? <laughs> Thank you. I would never trust that guy ever. No. If he approached me, no. I guess though, like they're like, oh my god, you know, they're probably like, fuck. <laughs> we don't want to be mean to this weirdo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now look at them; they're mm -hmm. all dead. This age difference, along with the fact that he was single, <laughs> imagine that. Yeah, imagine that, dude. He's been chasing around Penelope Pitstoff his whole life. <laughs> Stood out, especially for that era. Zolotaryov had a history as a World War II veteran. He served in several military units during the war, including as squad commander and in various uh, sapper and engineering battalions. Uh, battalions his military experience was extensive with participation in significant battles such as the defense of the rostov and the battle near uh, kharkov he also served in the defense of stalingrad one of the most critical battles of the war one of the most mysterious aspects of Zol uh, zolotaryov's involvement in the dyatlov pass incident was his uh, decision to take another camera with him when leaving the tent, separate from the one found in the tent. This camera was on his body when it was found and had remained there for three months underwater. The presence of this camera, particularly its intact condition, despite the severe injuries sustained by uh, Zolotaryov, including a beating to the head and a flail chest caused by multiple broken ribs, adds to the enigmatic nature of his role in the events. 
He shouldn't have been there, so plain and simple. This dude. guy, you know, whatever care, was happening, uh, most of them didn't even grab their fucking shoes. Yeah, this dude grabbed. And the this camera. guy was like, "Well, I got to bring my camera." Yeah, what a fucking weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> and mysteriously, the film inside of it was never found. Hmm. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. And none of the other members knew anything about the camera because they had, like, inventory of all the items they yeah, had with he them. he just had a secret camera. He just had them. a secret camera. He's taking pictures of all the girls, I bet. He took with him in a life-or-death situation. Yeah. Fucking dick dastardly. Don't disturb me when I'm cleaning my room. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> so, my theory is based on, like... Okay, so when you look at where all their bodies were and, like, the fact that they were by the tree and the ravine and all that, there's there's some people who speculate that they kind of, like, split up and started fending for themselves and creating teams or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like that's... I feel like they were working together. I, it, it seems like, to me, like, they made it down to the bottom of the pass and got to the trees, and they're like, okay... Whatever's happening is fucking happening. Uh, we need to get, we need to set up a camp somewhere and try to somewhere that we can be warm. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <coughs> uh, we also need, we might need some stuff from the tent. So, you three are gonna go head back towards the tent. Uh, uh, you four yeah. are gonna go find a place to set up camp. And us two are going to stay at this tree as a buffer in between you and apparently take turns climbing the tree to make sure that whatever was up there was not coming back. Damn. Scary, dude. Yeah. The KGB. (laughs) So my theory is that this fucking dick dastardly fella, uh, was a secret agent of some kind. He looks and like he, he joined would be. their team because he wanted to go spy the orange lights that were reported. Uh, you know, could have been maybe a flare they're, they're or testing weapons up there, oh, yeah. uh, bombs, nuclear weapons. I was thinking like a flare or something to signal where they are, or that. But yeah. They're just doing shit up there, yeah. and he wanted. He just happened to find some people that were going up there and said can i come with you guys and uh so there's uh, there's also a report or i don't know if it was a report or a theory it's probably a theory because i don't think there's any real evidence of it that uh dick dastardly and one of the other guys was they went outside one of them had to pee and oh that was the other theory that we didn't get to was that wind a strong I forget what the word is Throws for it. their pee no, all it, the way up into their body. They went out the pee, and the wind literally blew one of the guys down the hill, oh. cracked his head open, and they went after him. Because, like, I've been worried about it being so cold out. I peed outside once. I'm like, what if my pee freezes and, like, it just all, like, how gasoline follows? You know, what if yeah. it goes all <laughs> <laughs> It just freezes up. Yeah. 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 Could kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I feel like he he was, he was trying to spy on that area 
Maybe he was trying to meet somebody. I don't know. In the middle of the night, they're sleeping, and a bomb goes off near them. Yeah. That would explain why they got so scared. They didn't know what it was. It would explain the lights. It would explain uh, the reports that the the snow melted in ice. It heated up real quick and cooled down. Um, And so... That bomb goes off, and they cut open the tent. They flee. Yeah. They run down. Uh, they come up with their plan to survive the night. They start making their way back towards the tent, and another bomb goes hits. Uh. Knocking snit, which pretty much knocks all the people outside of the woods out, and the ones in the ravine, it causes the snow to fu- like a small avalanche to cave in on the ravine, yeah. smashing them, and uh, hmm. something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, I just... Dick Dastardly had something to do with it, dude. Yeah. He's 100%. the one... He's probably the one that took them that way. He's probably still alive, Because like, they dude. went off... That's a fake... Dick Dash release that they found. <laughs> he faked his death. He yeah. went to Peru. <laughs> With all the Diot love secrets, yeah. dude. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, That's a weird one. It's really hard to figure out and what like, exactly happened. And, like, since it's Russia, we'll never know, dude. Yep. I'm sure, you know, Nancy Pelosi has her issues with it <laughs> <laughs> sounds like russian disinformation plain and simple yeah it does that's what i think it was i think i think i think he was a commie looking for trouble and he found <laughs> Look, it looking for trouble <laughs> and that's that's really the lesson of all of this is just don't be a communist yeah. <laughs> looking for trouble yeah. <laughs> rarely do they ever actually go looking for trouble but yeah, when right. they do uh, damn dude but yeah uh so those are our stories man and uh those are some cool ones yeah yeah i want some fucking monster stories dude yeah well we're gonna f- keep turning these out once a month we'll f- get some really cool Read Twilight to me, dude. <laughs> That's the next episode. A new Moon. I like. Yeah. I like the werewolves introduced. <laughs> <laughs> Something. No, these were cool. Fucking. Uh, I had no idea all the cool shit about. Um, like you've lightly told me st- uh, about the stuff out in Pulaski, but. Um, I didn't know all the details, so that's, like, super cool. Your mom should have wrote that book, man. Yeah, they. Th- I guess she got threatened. What? <laughs> By Kimball? Yep, Kimball's family. She was, she knew Kimball. She was cool and uh, with him, and he told her that he could, she could write it if she wanted to, uh, but the rest of his family now, wasn't. Dude. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what she... Dude, we have your mom's back. Yeah, I wanted to make a documentary about it, honestly, for her. Oh, that would be cool, And have too. her involved, but... Yeah. Maybe someday. 
Wow. That's part of the reason why I wanted to do this as the first episode. That's Just cool. to do something about it for her and Hell have yeah. her involved, man. Cause, so Yeah, because we ain't fucking scared of no Kimballs, dude. <laughs> I met him before, man. I remember I remember meeting him at Kmart. We ran into him and I, I was like, Mommy, who's that weird guy? <laughs> and she told me the story. Well, he's a killer. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe a killer. <laughs> I don't think he is. No, personally. no, he definitely sounds innocent. Like he got fucking screwed more than anything. But, uh, but you know, still, I don't give a fuck, dude. You can't threaten Anthony's mom like that. No, dude. that was the thing. Is I'm pretty sure it was going to be pro yeah. him, and she still maybe she didn't know. I don't know. But here we are. That's cool, dude. Living vicariously for so. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. I'm here for it. Um, yeah, we're going to do this once a month. And if you guys have any theories or yeah, any your cool own shit. suggestions for stories, especially local ones. Black, Green Man. Yeah. should probably get those ones. Yeah. Mothman. The Murder Swamp. Murder Swamp. Even Moth. Like, spread it out a little bit. Yeah. We have, like, the Mothman down in West Virginia. Yeah. Shit like that. Yeah, man. It'll be cool. This was cool. This was fun. Was a little Cheers nervous about it, but I had a good time. Yeah, yeah. No. We'll be back downtown next week. Downtown. Chuck Lewis. With Chuck Lewis. Yeah. So tune into that. And like I said, you have any theories on what happened, share them. Oh, yeah. Thanks for watching. And until next time. Stay weird. Yeah, stay weird as fuck.